February 1998. Pier S-1A. Submarine Base Pearl Harbor, Oahu, Hawaii. Skipper, we've got a problem. The Navy chief leaned in, speaking quietly into Commander William Toady's ear. The two men were standing on the outdoor lanai at the Pearl Harbor Submarine Base Officers Club, amid a crowd of guests that included the four admirals who led U.S. military forces in the Pacific. It was not a good day for a problem. Buttoned into full-dress whites, Toady saw a blue Hawaiian sky arcing overhead. Around him, he heard cocktail chatter, glasses clinking, laughter, the sounds of a reception that followed the ceremony he'd been dreading for months. Toady looked at his chief and sighed, What is it? It's the plate, sir. All the Indianapolis plates in the galley are gone. Instantly, Toady's shoulders relaxed. He shook his head and laughed. As of that morning, the submarine's galley had been stacked with dinner plates bearing the boat's logo, crossed checkered flags with the designator SSN-697 at the bottom and USS Indianapolis at the top. If the plates were gone, Toady knew exactly who had taken them. Technically, it was theft, but no one in the entire Navy would dare call it a crime. About 30 survivors had taken Toady up on his invitation to join him for the deactivation ceremony. That morning, the old sailors had begun to trickle in, many still hale and hearty, some pushing walkers. They wore golf shirts and dress shirts and American flag ties. They sported CA-35 ball caps festooned with gold braid and commemorative pins. Some were round with home cooking, others thin, their trouser legs flapping around legs gaunt with age. One was dying of cancer. The young sailors in Toady's crew greeted the survivors warmly and shook their hands with something between reverence and awe. These old salts were the stuff of legend. For more than fifty years, every sailor coming through boot camp had learned the story of their survival. The swimming pool at the Recruit Training Center in Great Lakes, Illinois, was named in their honor, the USS Indianapolis Combat Training Pool. Because of the Indy disaster, every recruit now had to pass a swimming test in order to graduate from boot camp. That was not true during World War II. For more than a decade after the sinking, the Indianapolis tragedy lay mostly unexamined. After more than six years of war and 60 million dead, people had seemed ready to move on. Then, in 1958, Associated Press news editor Richard Newcomb published Abandoned Ship, a book that was part narrative and part investigative journalism. Newcomb, a Rutgers graduate, had served as a correspondent during World War II. The story told here is not a happy one, he wrote in the book's preface, and no official Navy imprimatur will be found upon it. 
Newcomb found that while Pearl Harbor, the Bataan Death March, Okinawa, and Iwo Jima seemed burned in the public memory, the greatest at-sea disaster of the war, indeed in American naval history, had receded into obscurity. Some people knew one part of the story and some knew another, but the myth and mystery which had grown up around the case were amazing. The lack of authentic knowledge extended even into official quarters and was most affecting where it was most unexpected, among those who had suffered through it. Newcomb was the first author, after the sinking, to interview the Indianapolis survivors. Many told him they had never even spoken to their families about the ordeal. Before the deactivation ceremony, Toadie's subcrew had taken some of the survivors on a tour of their namesake submarine. Later, sailors and officers assembled in ranks, and guests filed into a seating area. Toadie took his place at a podium under a white awning, its scalloped edges ruffling in the trade winds. From the dais, Toadie could see the glistening combination hats of his officers and chiefs, and the white Dixie cup caps of his petty officers and seamen. The survivors, wearing their ball caps, sat in chairs in the first row, the place of honor usually reserved for admirals. Toady squared up the pages of his speech, his heart a lead weight in his chest. Measured in commendations, his crew of 115 had proven themselves the best in the fleet. But with the Cold War long over and peace breaking out, the Pentagon had decided that America no longer needed so vast a subfleet. Soon, Indianapolis would be hauled up to Bremerton, Washington to be scrapped, and Toadie's crew scattered to the seven seas. In the process, he felt, the nation would lose something precious. The world that had once needed Indy had changed. That was a good thing, Toadie felt, but also profoundly sad, for it seemed to him that he was not here to praise Indianapolis, but to bury her. Toadie glanced briefly at his notes and began. He thanked the guests in attendance and reviewed his history aboard the submarine. We should celebrate the ship, he said, for she served us nobly, keeping us well and safe in a dangerous time. Indianapolis contributed greatly to that peace and to the end of the Cold War, and her success in that endeavor today leads to her demise. Today's peace is her legacy. But it was not always so. Our nation has known terrible war, and another USS Indianapolis was not fortunate enough to serve during times of peace. That Indianapolis was a major participant in the worst war the world has ever known. And so, I would like to honor the crew members from the cruiser Indianapolis, our sister ship, that ship has inspired us through the years in a way you can't understand unless you served on board. Toadie paused and let his eyes roam over the men in ball caps. As they gazed back at him, he saw a certain intensity of spirit, a warrior's fire in their eyes.
No ship or crew in history has done more or sacrificed more than the cruiser Indianapolis. But we were at war, and in war the nation calls upon its finest to perform greatly and sometimes to suffer greatly in defense of freedom. Finally, gentlemen, I would like to correct an omission. I have observed that you never had the benefit of being able to put your ship to rest in a manner such as this. You never got to decommission your Indianapolis. But since our achievement was built on the shoulders of your sacrifice, I thought it appropriate that we finally correct this oversight. For our Indianapolis is your Indianapolis. And so, it would make me very proud if you would join with my crew here today to finally and gallantly put an end to your service and be once again dismissed together as a crew, one crew, the crew of USS Indianapolis. Shipmates, as I call out your names, if you would take your station and man your watch, we will all be a crew once again. And they did. One by one, Toady called their names. The amiably ornery ones like Glenn Morgan, 74. And the not-so-ornery ones like John Spinelli, 75, who served on the cruiser as a cook. Spinelli was dying of lung cancer, but had made the trip anyway. There was Paul Murphy, 73, and Lyle Umenhofer, 70, and more than two dozen others. The old sailors took their places, standing with the young sailors in spaces that had been left between them. Toady noticed that the survivors stood at attention in exactly the right way. Though half a century had passed, they hadn't forgotten how. At the reception afterward, Toady was chatting with guests when the chief leaned in to tell him about the missing plates. Don't worry about it, chief, Toady said, smiling. I'll take care of it. He was still smiling when survivors Murphy and Morgan walked up and shook his hand. The men were accompanied by their wives, Mary Lou Murphy and Murdy Joe Morgan. Toady noticed a faint protrusion in the front of Morgan's golf shirt, a slim, round outline just above his belt. Um, Glenn? Toady said. Yes. That wouldn't happen to be an Indianapolis galley plate you've got in your shirt there, would it? Morgan's face crinkled into a sly grin. A plate? Why, Bill, I don't know what you're talking about. Toady laughed. Murphy thanked Toady for inviting them, and then paused for a moment before continuing. Me and the men have been talking, Murphy said. Standing in formation as part of the Indy crew again is something we'll never forget. Paul, it's my honor, Toady said, and I don't think those young sailors who stood with you today will ever forget it either. After the war, Murphy had gone on to become a mechanical engineer and Morgan a division supervisor with Texaco. Now both were retired. Murphy fixed his gaze on Toady and turned serious. Hey, we've all been thinking, he said, meaning the survivors. 
There may never be another USS Indianapolis to carry on the reputation of our ship. That means you're the last captain of the Indianapolis. Have you thought about that? Of course I've thought about it, Toady answered. Murphy squared his shoulders and looked Toady directly in the eye. Well, the last captain of the last Indianapolis needs you, he said and some of us think you have a duty to respond to his call. Book Three The Deep The Philippine Sea July 30th to August 4th, 1945 1. July 30th, 1945, Monday, pre-dawn, site of the sinking. Captain McVeigh swiveled his head in the liquid darkness. He could hear other men calling out, but floated alone in a layer of fuel oil, the kind so thick it had to be heated to be transferred. The oil rocked on the surface in a gooey slab, its tarry stench climbing down McVeigh's throat like the caustic fumes of road construction. Beneath the oil, the water felt cool, not cold about 80 degrees. Storms to the north of Indianapolis's track had whipped the waves into a confused state that buffeted McVeigh about. He looked up and saw that clouds gauzed the moon. Suddenly, a hard edge bumped him and he whirled around. It was a potato crate, and he climbed aboard, straddling it. A few seconds later, two life rafts floated by, one atop the other, and McVeigh abandoned the crate for the rafts. Most of the wood lattice flooring in the rafts was gone, and he could find no paddles. Then he heard voices and began yelling in their direction. Through the dark, a voice shot back, Is that Captain McVeigh? Yes. Who is that? It's Allard, sir. Come aboard. Within a short time, the quartermaster had swum over, herding two young sailors, both spent and nearly unconscious. McVeigh and Allard worked to unstack the rafts and lash them together. Then captain and quartermaster hauled the injured men into the second raft before crawling into a raft of their own. Both young men seemed to McVeigh to have ingested large quantities of salt water and oil and they were unable to stop retching. Exhaustion finally set in, then silence. McVeigh kept an eye on the two stricken boys in the other raft. Soon, neither was moving, and he concluded that they were dead. In his haste to escape the ship's suction, Glenn Morgan hadn't had time to look around, but once he got clear, he sucked in his breath and took his bearings. The hazy moon offered little light, but he could make out a huge shadow hulking on the surface not far away. As his eyes adjusted to the darkness, the shadow resolved. A seaplane. Indy had carried three Curtis SC-1 Seahawk floatplanes, with one almost always sitting in a catapult, ready for launch. This one, must have torn loose during the explosions and been blown clear, 
it was actually sitting upright on its floats. Morgan immediately pictured himself climbing out of the drink into what was likely the only dry spot for almost 300 miles. Wait until he told Murdy Joe when this was all over. She wouldn't believe his luck. He dug in swimming again. He'd heard some yelling and expected to meet other men. But he did not see a single soul. When he reached the plane, he saw an empty wooden life raft floating directly under the tail. Then, in a flash, he saw his salvation slipping away. The plane's floats were damaged, and she was beginning to sink. The vertical stabilizer on the Seahawk's tail fell sideways, aimed dead center of the raft like the downstroke of an axe. As the seaplane's tail timbered toward the sea, Morgan lunged for the raft and grabbed its edge. He lifted his foot from the water, braced it against the stabilizer's edge, and pulled the raft as hard as he could. Just as the plane's tail hit the water, the raft scooted clear, and Morgan watched the seaplane sink through a flurry of black foam as quickly as a dead man with an anvil tied to his leg. A wave of disappointment stole over him, followed quickly by a flood of gratitude. He'd lost the plane, but at least he had the raft. He climbed in and took another look around. He could still see no other survivors, but he spotted another raft. Paddling by hand, he got close enough to snag it. He lashed them together with lengths of slim line that were tied along the sides of each raft. That was when a head popped into view, then another, and another, each one black and unrecognizable completely covered in a mucky sheath. Several men climbed into the rafts with Morgan. The crude gray vessels resembled rectangular canvas-wrapped donuts and had wooden latticework suspended inside them by rope mesh. While not at all dry or comfortable, they at least offered a resting place. In the case of the Indy, some of these could accommodate as many as twenty-five tightly packed sailors all standing waist-deep on the wooden platform. Eventually, Morgan, aided in part by signalman third-class Kenley Lanter from Thomasville, Georgia, and first-class radioman J.J. Moran, lashed four of these rafts together. As a bonus, they had a floater net tied alongside. The net did not offer the same type of protection as a raft, since it was really just a grid of cork floats connected at 18-inch intervals. The rafts were equipped with survival kits. In them, Morgan and his new companions found meager rations, flares, fishing supplies, and some flashlights. They discussed using the flashlights to signal other survivors, but were leery. Japanese submarines had been known to lurk at a sinking site and machine-gun any survivors. L.D. Cox hadn't been in the ocean long when he started adding to its contents. His stomach lurched again and again, and he vomited great gouts of salt water mixed with the fuel oil, which seemed to him only slightly thinner than tar. Cox had watched Indy sink from view 
and heard her protests rendered in shrieking steel. It had sounded to him just like she had a soul. Bubbles the size of jellyfish jetted to the surface, and he could feel them exploding against his groin. Must be the boilers, Cox had thought. Afterward, Cox swam right into another young sailor, who had been badly burned. Is that you, Cox? the sailor asked. Squinting in the dark, Cox realized it was one of his best buddies. Josie? Cox could hardly believe what he was seeing. Clifford Josie was covered in flash burns in every place that his skin was exposed. In the dim moonlight, it looked as if his face was melting off. To avoid touching the delicate burned flesh, Cox grabbed Josie by the vest, pulled him close, and held him while they floated in the dark. Someone put a life jacket on me and pushed me overboard, Josie said, his voice barely a whisper. Josie was one of the Texas boys Cox liked to hang around with. His family lived just a couple of hours from Cox's own. Now the two, both still in their teens, agitated in the wind-whipped swells like rags in the gentle cycle of a washing machine. From somewhere off in the gloom, Cox heard shouts for help. But he stayed with Josie, held him, and soothed him with talk about what it was going to be like when they got home to Texas. Josie only lived for an hour. A little over an hour after he fired his torpedoes, Hashimoto received another report. The target sonar had gone silent. Both reports to Hashimoto of Indianapolis using underwater sound detection were in error. Indy had no such gear. When his torpedo men finished reloading for a second salvo, he gave the order, surface the ship. The diving officer echoed back the command. High-pressure air shot into the ballast tanks, and I-58 rose like a dirigible, leaving Earth. A crew member asked Hashimoto whether, once back on the surface, he would allow the crew to attack any enemy survivors. No, Hashimoto replied. We have already done our job. When the boat reached the skin of the sea, Hashimoto pierced it with his periscope and swept the head window in a full ring. He could see nothing. He ordered the helmsman to make for the spot where the target would have sunk. Then he looked again. Still nothing. A ship so badly wounded could not have fled so quickly over the horizon, he thought. Though he was now certain he had sunk a major American warship, he wanted some proof but he could not even spot any debris. With the moon tucked again behind the clouds, he could barely make out the horizon, let alone detect objects on the surface. Frustration set in, then regret, as he knew what he had to do next. There was virtually no chance the Americans would have sent a capital ship out this far on its own, so there had to be other ships around probably destroyers. Wary of counterattacks, Hashimoto gave the order to turn northeast, and I-58 sailed away. Harpo Salea had been swimming 
since the ship disappeared. All around him was a strange quiet, the only sound an eerily isolated slapping of the sea against his own body. For a moment, he pictured himself from above, the only man alive for hundreds of miles, just a pinprick in a vast, watery universe. He did not know that the ocean around him was filled with other men, some whole, others mortally injured, some drifting with the swells, others thrashing for their lives. Debris floated between them, food crates, helmets, lines, buoys, gas masks, the detritus of the ship. When the first torpedo opened the bow, it ripped into the ship's stores, and the water was littered with shoes, gloves, and winter coats. Harpo had been swimming for about fifteen minutes when he saw a floating body. Swimming closer, he could see the dead man wore a life jacket. Harpo swam right up to the body, which abruptly sputtered to life. Get away from me, the sailor yelled. Get away! What do you mean, get away? Harpo cried. I don't have a life jacket. I need help. Get away! Get away! The sailor repeated and struck out in a flailing crawl to put distance between himself and Harpo. Harpo swam away and kept swimming until he ran right into a miracle. Two sailors on a raft. He made his way over. Boy, am I glad to see you fellows, he said. As you prepared to climb aboard, one of the men batted Harpo's arm away and roared, Get the hell off! Harpo swam to the other side of the raft and tried again. The other man grabbed Harpo's shoulders and tried to shove his head under water. Harpo fought his way loose. He kept his distance for a few moments, then cautiously made his way back to the raft. He saw a rope tied to one side, trailing down into the water. Harpo grabbed it and hung on. Edgar Harrell found himself floating in the midnight sea with a group of about 80 men, including two other Marines. One was so badly injured that he lasted only a couple of hours. The other, Private First Class Miles Spooner, a Florida boy, was in agony. Leaving Indy, he dove into the water head first, and now his eyes burned beneath the viscous layer of oil that clung to his corneas like a poisoned skin. To keep the waves from separating them, these survivors had latched their life vests together front to back, forming a circle. The first topic of conversation was rescue. Had an SOS gotten off before Indy sank? They tried to assure each other that one had. Besides, the Navy would miss them when they failed to show up for gunnery practice as scheduled. Harrell, who served as Captain McVeigh's Marine orderly, had heard the skipper discussing this appointed rendezvous. Indy was to meet the battleship USS Idaho on the morning of July 31st, which, the men realized, was only a handful of hours away. The conversation then turned to danger. They were reasonably sure it had been a sub that sank them, and Japanese submariners were known to be ruthless, surfacing to machine-gun survivors. Sometimes 
they dragged survivors onto the sub and systematically killed them by pistol, clubbing, or beheading. In 1944, half a dozen such stories had sizzled around Indy like sparks on a wire. On the other hand, Harrell and many others figured that help was on the way. There was a good chance the enemy would know that too and clear out of the area. After he abandoned ship, 19-year-old seaman first-class Felton Outland looked around to see four tethered life rafts almost within his reach. Only moments earlier, he had nearly suffered the same fate as Indianapolis. Before the order to abandon ship, Outland's friend, George Abbott, went below to look for life jackets. He returned with only one and gave it to Outland, then went to look for more. Outland started to leave the ship on the port side, but the water met him on the main deck, and as Indy plunged for the bottom, she took Outland with her. On the way down, his feet got tangled in some kind of line, and the ship dragged him under the water deeper and deeper. Soon the air in his lungs turned toxic, and he had to expel it. Bubbles jetting to the surface, even as he descended into the cool, dark abyss. Just when it seemed he would never see light again, the line untangled, and the kapok jacket shot him to the surface. He sucked in a great ragged breath and thanked God and George Abbott. The kapok saved Outland's life, but he would never see his friend again. On reaching the bundled rafts, Outland did what he could to clear his eyes of diesel fuel and found one other man there, Mike Carilla, a coxswain. He climbed aboard and together they called out to others, This way! We have a raft! Soon, 18-year-old Glenn Milbrot, a seaman second class from Akron, Iowa, pulled himself into one of the four empty rafts, then turned to pull others aboard. One man he helped was completely naked. Feeling badly for him, Milbrot gave him the shirt off his own back. Soon the group swelled to 17 men, including Robert Brundage, another Iowa farm boy, and Giles McCoy, a loud and cocky Marine. McCoy had been guarding two prisoners in the brig when the torpedoes hit. Working the jail keys quickly, he freed the prisoners and the three men bolted topside together. Now, McCoy still wore his big, heavy shoes and a forty-five automatic pistol in a gun belt on his waist. 2. July 30th, 1945. Monday. Sunrise. Five miles from sinking site. Sunrise over the Philippine Sea revealed an ironically beautiful morning. Blue skies, azure seas, and what promised to be a bright tropical sun. Had someone spotted the survivors from the air, they would have seen a thick jet-black mat of oil with clumps of men distributed throughout. When the torpedoes hit, some men forward were blown off the ship while others saw the bow gone and jumped over the side without orders. 
For the twelve minutes that Indianapolis was still above the surface, she continued making way. Her inboard screws, driven from the after-engine room, propelled the ship through the water in a giant leftward arc, depositing men, singly and in groups, over one to two miles on her heading of 260 degrees. For this reason, on the morning of the first day, the survivor groups could not see each other, and many thought their group represented the only men left alive. The currents in the area moved along at about one mile per hour and also whirled in giant, slow-moving eddies that mixed men and debris as if all were caught in a slow-motion butter churn. Some men drifted together, others apart. Two men within shouting distance in the morning might be a quarter mile apart by afternoon, or vice versa. Still, the men would never again be in such close proximity as they were this first day. Already the survivor groups had drifted about five miles generally west-southwest. About 300 to 400 of the 880 or so initial survivors had coalesced into one large group. Mostly bobbing in life jackets or treading water, this group included John Woolston, Dr. Haynes, Dr. Modisher, Father Conway, and Captain Park, commander of Indy's Marine Detachment. It was Park who had detailed Harold to post guards around Major Furman's crate. Now, in the water, he immediately took charge, and the men, who had been safe on their ship one minute and the next cast adrift in the open sea, were glad of it. They could hear the Marine captain yelling orders to be on the lookout for buoys, which might hold telephones to be used by downed pilots who crashed at sea. With his booming voice and the help of Conway and Haynes, Park organized these hundreds of floaters into one great mass. Each man put his arms through the life jacket of the man in front of him, so that back to front, the group formed a large ring. The injured and those without life jackets were put in the center, where Haynes and Modisher could look after them. At first light, Park took stock of the group's resources, which, apart from life jackets, consisted of a single line of rope, about a hundred feet long. There have been varying accounts from different survivors as to the actual length of the line used to corral the group, but most standard heavy cruiser life rings had throw lines measuring approximately 100 feet. A ring formed from such a line would measure about 30 feet across. Though the seas were calm, rolling swells and shifting currents threatened to drag the group apart. Park ordered the men to shape the line into a ring. Those with life jackets were to tie themselves to the line, and those without jackets were to hang on. The procedure was simple, but it kept the men together and gave them something to focus on, a strategy that would prove to save lives. Modisher had been sleeping near the bow when the first torpedo struck, and he awoke to the whistle of a lethal blade. The explosion had launched a porthole cover from the hull plating, and it went sailing past his head like a guillotine. 
He jumped down from the middle rack and peered out the open porthole, but could see only steam and smoke and hear the sounds of chaos. The doctor donned a life jacket and dashed to the quarterdeck, where he found a melee of badly burned men. He found an emergency kit, but there wasn't much he could do except to dispense salve and pain medicine. He wished he had some now. Several men in his floater group were catastrophically burned. There was not much the doctors could do medically, but Haynes and Modisher encouraged the men to fight their salt water and oil-induced nausea and to refrain from vomiting. They needed to conserve both energy and fluids, since no one knew how long they'd be adrift before rescue arrived. The pearl light of dawn revealed to Harpo Salea that his group had swelled in the night to more than a hundred men. At least two more rafts and two floater nets had joined the flotilla, and now he hung on to his little line and watched a bizarre carousel of desperation. Castaways crabbed over the rafts and nets in swarms, swamping them until they dumped everyone and sank, only to pop to the surface again. The process then repeated. Finally, Chief Clarence Benton swam forward to short-circuit the chaos. All right, everyone off the rafts unless you're injured or without a life jacket. Everyone else can hang on to the sides. Benton, all of 28, was not the senior man. A number of officers had joined the group, including Ensign Donald Blum, who'd watched gunnery practice with the Army officers on the way to Tinian, and Ensign Harlan Twibble, one of the new officers who had joined the ship at Mare Island. Twibble had graduated from the academy, gotten married, and reported to Indianapolis all in the space of a single month. There were also two other ensigns, a seasoned warrant officer and a few chiefs, Lieutenant Richard Redmayne was the SOPA, the senior officer present afloat, literally. But with everyone disguised in fuel oil, he did not declare himself. Chief Benton, who hailed from a small town in New Mexico, stepped into this break in the chain of command. The men, for the most part, obeyed him. Rejected from the rafts, Salea floated in exile. He hadn't gotten along with too many men while on the ship, and he wasn't sure things would change for the better out here. Grief gnawed at his mind as he replayed his leap from the ship and mourned his friend, Santos Peña. After the two original raft passengers fought him off the previous night, another pair of survivors tried to force their way aboard but were also repelled. Then so many survivors swarmed the raft that the two men couldn't hold them off any longer. Among this larger group was Redmayne. He had muscled his way aboard the raft and remained there, nursing his burned hands. Redmayne spent the dark early morning hours watching as a couple of chiefs directed the men to collect any useful supplies from the water and put them in the rafts, water casks, ration tins, malt tablets. They would be divided equally and distributed later. From time to time, he asked men nearby their name and rank. Surely someone would outrank him and take charge of the group. 
In a group this large, under these circumstances, officers might be targets, and self-preservation called for cagey tactics. He would bide his time. In the same group were Lebo's poker buddy Paul Murphy and Lindsay Wilcox, a second-class water tender who had worked in the fire room deep in Indy's belly. If he had not been relieved ten minutes before the torpedoes struck, he would have been killed. At twenty-one, Wilcox was a newlywed. He gave thanks to God and repented of every last sin he could think of, including the time he stole a pie from his grandmother's kitchen window. Glenn Morgan, who had rescued a single raft from under the seaplane, now had a small armada of four rafts, a floater net, and twenty men. The rafts slid up and down the long, glassy swells, while smaller waves smashed over the sides. This group was near the McVeigh rafts, but could not see them, as the swells towered overhead like walls, blocking their sight. At intervals, Morgan thrust his head over the edge of his raft and retched. It wasn't seasickness. It was the fuel oil. Only in the morning did he realize that he, like his mates, was lacquered in it. Morgan didn't recognize everyone in his group. Three he knew well, Moran and Lanter, who shared his raft, and Lieutenant, junior grade, Howard Freeze, the senior man in the group. Morgan had stood watch with Freeze and thought him a fine officer. Freeze, who abandoned ship in his underwear, sat in the raft adjacent. Morgan saw that the lieutenant's skin glowed a frightening pink, as if he'd been flash-fried. Morgan rested in water to his waist, but the top layer of the Western Pacific was warm enough. To get more of their bodies clear of the water, the men took turns sitting on the raft's edges, but only one or two at a time. Any more would push the raft deeper, causing the water to rise chest-high on the men still seated inside. A bag lashed to the lattice held several small kegs of water and a pouch of survival gear. There was a first-aid kit, cans of Spam, fishing kits, malt tablets for controlling thirst, some hardtack, a hatchet, and small enamel cups. The bag also contained signaling mirrors, four-by-eight-foot pieces of canvas and, most promising, flares. They were ten-gauge flare shells with a primitive little firing tube operated by a plunger. Morgan, fire off a few of those, Freeze called from his raft, calm and reserved, despite the severity of his burns. Yes, sir, Morgan said. He loaded one of the green shells into the tube, held it straight up, pulled the plunger, and let it go. The tube coughed smoke and a little green ball of fire sailed into the sky, reminding Morgan of a one-shot Roman candle. Quickly he reloaded and fired a red flare and then a white one and watched them climb, too. But their fire looked anemic in the blazing sunlight, and Morgan doubted they could be seen at any distance at all. He checked the remaining supply of flares. 
there were only four or five. Sir, why don't we save the rest of these, he said to Freeze. Let's wait until dark. Freeze agreed and remarked to one of the men that his pain level was such that he wished he had a large supply of morphine. I'd rather die from too much morphine than die of these burns, he said. Then Freeze fell silent. Morgan could see that he had lapsed into shock. Monday, day. Harmon Field, Guam. Something about the naval battle he'd seen the night before was bothering Army pilot Richard LaFrancis. The action he and MacArthur's general saw splashing like fireworks against the midnight sea had not looked to them like gunnery practice. In fact, it looked more like a large ship being sunk. After landing his plane at Harmon Field on Guam, LaFrancis caught a ride over to the Navy end of the island and tracked down a commander. He described the events of the night before, adding that the general thought he'd seen the ship firing back. The Navy commander told LaFrancis that he was unaware of any gunnery practice scheduled for that area and that LaFrancis and the general had probably not seen the kind of action LaFrancis described. Having done his due diligence, LaFrancis hitched a ride back to the Army side of Guam and for the time being let it go. Ten Miles from the Sinking Site As the morning sun warmed the Pacific waters, gunner's mate Buck Gibson held a dying boy in his arms. The two sailors sprawled half out of the water on a floater net, not far from the Redmain group the second largest gathering of men. Dozens of desperate survivors had swarmed the flimsy island, and Gibson had to fight for a place to hang on as the net surged up and down in ten to twelve-foot swells. He was surrounded by blackened faces, so coated with filth that he couldn't tell who they were, not even the kid in his arms. When Indy tipped sideways and boxes started sliding. Gibson had donned an old horse-collar life jacket and tossed a floater net over the port side. Before he abandoned ship, he ran into his buddy, Tommy Meyer of Marlin, Texas. I'll make you a deal, Gibson shouted. If you don't make it, I'll go see your folks in Marlin. If I don't make it, you go see my folks in Mart. The two men shook on it, but Gibson hadn't seen Meyer since. Now he cradled this young sailor, whose right arm had been boiled crimson and black and smelled like cooked meat. Help's on the way, Gibson murmured softly, his Texas accent thick as sausage gravy. How old are you, anyhow? Seventeen, the boy murmured. Well, help's on the way. You don't have to keep saying that. I'm not afraid to die. Gibson marveled. For three years, he'd been afraid. Strafed and shelled and dive-bombed until he'd gazed down from Indy's decks at the dark, swirling sea 
and feared it might swallow him whole. Now he saw fear everywhere he looked, but this kid lay peacefully and did not complain. On the far side of the floater nets, about a hundred yards away, Buck's good buddy, Coxon Kozel Smith, clung to a single life vest along with Joseph Dronit, who could not swim. Dronit wasn't the only one. Clarence Hupka, a baker, and Verlin Fortin, a water tender, had both served aboard Indy for nearly two years, but the Navy hadn't taught either of them to swim. Both vowed to learn quickly. Without a life jacket of his own, Smith had stayed afloat all night by attaching himself to Dronit. During the morning, he spotted Gibson and his group in the distance, hanging on to something. He swam for it and found the group clustered around a floater net, barely holding on to the edges, clinging to one another. Those without life jackets clambered on top of those who did, piling themselves three and four men high. Smith found this situation no better than the one he'd left but he was too exhausted to swim back. He thought about something his father had said when he joined the Navy after completing the 10th grade. Do you know what I'm signing? His father had asked as he scribbled his signature on Smith's Navy application. Smith, then 17, replied in know-it-all fashion that yes, he knew. His father was signing his permission for Smith to join the Navy. No, his father said. I'm signing your death warrant. Now, Smith supposed his father had been right. Viewed from above on these rolling blue dunes, the survivor groups were now spread over several miles of open sea, still connected by thick, winding mats of fuel oil. Three separate groups, Richard Redmaine's, Glenn Morgan's, and Felton Outlands would form around three different quartets of rafts with varying numbers of attendant floater nets. Several groups of raftless swimmers formed as well, some with floater nets, some with only the life jackets on their backs. The largest group with only life jackets was the one that included Haynes, Woolston, Conway, and Park. But over the coming days, more than a hundred men would drift away from the Haynes group to join others, or form their own. Ed Harrell's swimmer group floated among those toward the north. With the sun full up, Harrell could see that about a third of the men in his group had died during the night. He and others removed their dog tags and vests and relinquished their bodies to the deep. But many of the dead refused to leave and soon the fifty or sixty men still living found themselves swimming with a school of corpses. By contrast, the McVeigh group, among those toward the southwestern edge of the survivor map, enjoyed a relative oasis. They had connected with another raft and floater net bearing five more men, bringing McVeigh's castaway crew to a total of nine souls. Also, the men found on their rafts two good paddles, a very flare pistol with a dozen flares, and a large sheet of canvas. There was a box of matches, too, 
but it had soaked through, rendering the contents mostly useless. They also salvaged some tubes of ointment and a few morphine serrets from an emergency kit that was otherwise ruined. Later in the morning, McVeigh spotted a pair of rafts in the distance. They popped into view when McVeigh's raft topped the wave crests, then disappeared when it slid down into the troughs. The nearest of the new rafts was about 1,500 yards away, and someone aboard was yelling for help. But the seas had grown rough, and his men were so exhausted from swimming for their lives that McVeigh knew they could not attempt to paddle over. As Monday wore on, the McVeigh group floated near an emergency rations can and scooped it aboard. Food! Beautifully packed, with a double tin top to prevent water from seeping in, it contained several cans of Hormel Spam, along with malted milk tablets and tins of biscuits. McVeigh looked over the rations and did some quick math. I will open one Hormel tin per day, he announced, adding that he would divide the twelve ounces evenly. He also calculated that each man could have two malted milk tablets and two biscuits per day. Rationed this way, he thought the provisions could last up to ten days. Late that day came the most important find of all, a three-gallon water breaker. The men heaved it aboard. McVeigh examined it, then tested the water, and found it salty. The breaker had apparently developed a hairline crack and admitted the sea, making the water nearly undrinkable. McVeigh decided not to tell the men. Instead, he announced that he would take charge of the water and save it until someone absolutely needed a drink. The men floated and waited, and McVeigh, ever in control of the situation, asked questions of them one at a time bidding them to answer to the group. John Muldoon, a first-class machinist's mate, said he'd found his way to this small assembly with John Spinelli in a busted-out life raft. Spinelli, a cook, sat shirtless while George Curlick, a fire controlman, was stark naked. Curlick told his raft mates that he'd abandoned ship directly from the showers. From then on, the men kidded him. Hey, George, did you at least turn off the shower before you jumped over the side? 3. July 30, 1945. Monday. Day. Tinian Island. All things considered, life on the island of Tinian agreed with Major Robert Furman. The army had quartered him in a pyramid tent in sight of the ships at sea. The chow hall food was crude, but there was plenty of it, and he was pleasantly surprised at the available drinks and confections. Every week, each man received five glasses of cool beer. When Indianapolis pulled into Tinian Town Bay on July 26th, the first thing Furman did was search for the faces of the assembled brass for news on the Trinity test. He saw in their eyes the determined glint of success. After the crane lowered the canisters into the waiting landing craft, 
Furman and Nolan climbed down a rope ladder, a maneuver Furman found tricky, and dropped into the boat. Once ashore, the shipment was carefully packed into a truck and shuttled to an assembly area under the charge of Captain William Deke Parsons and Project Alberta. Francis Birch, a naval officer who would supervise Little Boy's assembly, signed for the canisters. Then, perhaps for the first time since being recalled from his beach vacation, Furman took a long, deep breath and relaxed. He had passed the baton. Now, Parsons and the 51 Los Alamos scientists, engineers, technicians, and administrative officers of Project Alberta would complete the final leg of the race that Furman had been running since 1943. First, the assembly. The weapon for which he had transported the fissionable material consisted of a gun that would fire one mass of uranium-235 at another. An initiator would then inject a burst of neutrons, triggering a chain reaction and a titanic accumulation of energy that would ultimately cause the bomb to blow itself apart and shower Armageddon on the target city. In its final form, the weapon would be only 10 feet long and 28 inches across. The scientists had dubbed it Little Boy. Second, the delivery. Aboard a B-29 bomber of the 509th Composite Bomber Squadron, her pilot, Colonel Paul Tibbetts, Jr., had named the plane after his mother, Enola Gay. Furman believed the bomb mission just. Too many lives had been lost already. While he was shepherding nuclear scientists for groves during the development of the bomb, one young scientist received a letter from his father, an infantry officer fighting at the front in Italy. This is some pretty horrible stuff I'm going through over here, the father wrote. The scientist wrote back, Well, just hang in there. I can't tell you what I'm doing, but it's going to end the war. Glad to hear it, the father replied. But is there any chance it could be tomorrow or the next day? I don't know whether I can last much longer. He did not last, but died instead. Though this bomb was unprecedented in lethality, Furman believed using it would save hundreds of thousands of lives, perhaps millions, both American and Japanese. For now, though, he found himself on this tiny coral rock, bunked down between an ex-policeman and future tree surgeon on one side and a member of the Massachusetts Bar on the other. When no business pressed, Furman wrote letters to his folks or joined Captain Nolan to explore the beaches and shallows. Once the pair ventured out past a sandy coastal shelf over a ring of sharp coral rocks and into crystalline water that flashed with a rainbow of tropical fish. The Philippine Sea Floating near Buck Gibson's group, Seaman second-class Curtis Pace was used to seeing silver barracuda flashing beneath his feet. But when a shadow larger and more menacing passed close below him, 
pace panicked, kicking and flailing, until a shout snapped his frenzy. What the hell is wrong with you? Turning, Pace saw a young sailor with horror in his eyes. Nothing, Pace said. He didn't want to scare the kid. Thought I saw something, that's all. Must have been all the oil in my eyes. The kid relaxed. Pace glanced down in time to see a shark whip its tail once, and its dark silhouette melt in with the predator squadron flying through the water below. The sharks had been visible down there for a while, scores of them cycloned in water columns that were clear as crystal for at least fifty feet before receding into sapphire. Many were likely oceanic white tips, the most common ship-following shark, and considered the most dangerous shark of all. The Japanese called them yogore, the word an assembly of kanji characters that convey the ideas of pollute, defile, and rape. Usually loners, white tips will gather in large packs around plentiful food, like jackals around the weak in the Serengeti. Bronze in color, with paddle-like pectoral fins, they swim so slowly as to appear nonchalant, almost lazy. But once aroused, they are utterly relentless. For now, the sharks around Pace seem content to circle and wait, advancing in aggressive curiosity, then retreating to await opportunity. Evening came, the sky still bright but fading. A few hundred yards from Pace, Haynes and Park kept the floaters organized. The group had formed into concentric rings, expanding outward from the center, where the most gravely injured men remained sheltered, those dragging broken limbs, bleeding from wide gashes, or blinded with burns. Haynes and Modisher swam from man to man offering any help they could, which was almost none since they had no supplies. Soon, Haynes came upon two sailors taking turns holding up a severely injured man. It was his good friend, the gunnery officer Stanley Lipsky. His eyes seemed boiled in their sockets. What remained of his hands appeared as charred meat clinging to bones. Lou, I'm dying, Lipsky murmured. Tell my wife I love her and that she should marry again. I will, Stan, Haynes whispered. Haynes stayed near, offering words of reassurance. Supported only by partially saturated life vests, Yeoman Dick Parabek and Signalman Third Class Frank Santazzo held Lipsky's hands up out of the water and kept his legs flat so that they would not dangle and cause him any more pain. Stanley Lipsky took a long time to die. When he finally let go, Haynes cut away his life jacket and let his friend, one of the most respected officers aboard Indianapolis, slip silently into the deep. Haynes, Parabek, and Santazzo watched Lipsky recede down and down until he disappeared. The Lord is my shepherd, someone began. 
I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Like a flame passed from one candle to the next, the twenty-third psalm spread from man to man, those who knew it joining in, voices rising until the benediction glowed warm over the spot on earth where Lipsky left this life. Combat Intelligence, Sink Pack, Pearl Harbor under the somnolent sway of palm trees outside a two-story plantation-style building, not far from the Pearl Harbor shipyard, a set of stairs led down to an unremarkable and windowless basement office. There, on the afternoon of July 30th, Sinkpack's ultra-magicians intercepted a message. The captain of the Tamon Group submarine I-58 was reporting to his high command that he'd sunk something. I-58 had attacked on 29 July at 2332, the message said. Sinking confirmed, obtained three torpedo hits. Hashimoto obtained only two torpedo hits. The codemen decrypted everything they could, but there were two parts of the transmission they could not recover, the type of ship sunk and the location. Sometimes, Japanese sub-commanders exaggerated their successes, hoping to curry favor or save face. The most likely scenario was that it was another enemy hoax. The Japanese had been known to fabricate sinking reports, hoping to bait American rescuers into a trap. In any case, the intercept was one of about 500 processed that day. Without a vessel type or location of the alleged sinking, there wasn't much to go on. Still, the magicians put the intercept into the mill for processing. Linguists checked the Japanese-to-English translation, then the message was delivered to Captain Smedberg in combat intelligence and to other stations around the world. Also on July 30th, Commander Amphibious Forces Pacific, COMFIBSPAC, tried to raise Indianapolis for a planned test of the ship's new radio teletype equipment. When the test failed, COMFIBSPAC asked for a relay through Radio Guam. That test also failed, prompting COMFIBSPAC to notify SYNCPAC Advance that radio checks would be discontinued until Indianapolis advised that she was ready for further tests. The SYNCPAC advance communications officer was not unduly alarmed. Maybe the ship's new receivers weren't working. Meanwhile, operations staffers at Lady had been tracking Indianapolis on their plotting boards. Using McVeigh's planned speed of advance of 15.7 knots, they approximated the ship's position and moved her west along Route Petty accordingly. On the eastern side of Petty, Captain Naquin's staff at Guam consulted Indy's routing orders. According to her plan of intended movement, she had crossed the chop line and was now Philippine Sea Frontier's responsibility. Several hours later, when the clock struck the time of Indy's estimated arrival at Lady, Guam would simply wipe her off their map.
4. July 30, 1945. Monday. Evening. 10 to 20 miles from sinking site. Kozel Smith was still floating in Buck Gibson's net group when a shark barreled up from below and locked its jaws onto Smith's left hand. Instantly, Smith was pulled under. A single horrific thought shrieked in his head I am going to be eaten alive. The shark dragged Smith ten feet below the surface. Enveloped in a storm of bubbles, He held his breath and shoved at the shark's snout with his right hand. The animal snapped its head back and forth, holding Smith's arm in vice like jaws while trying to saw it off with its teeth. Then Smith's right hand slipped on the shark's skin, and he felt his middle finger jab a soft spot and go all the way in. Suddenly, The shark let go. Smith popped through the surface, gasping, his hand shredded and bleeding. He struck out swimming in a wild race back to the nets. The men on the nets had seen the attack. No! Get away! Get away! they cried, terrified of the chum line that streamed from Smith's hand. As he neared the group, they kicked him and clubbed him with arms and fists. But the shark attack had charged Smith with adrenaline, and he bulldozed through the group, climbing over men's bodies like a rat fleeing fire. He landed in the middle of a net, where a sailor whipped out a knife and began slashing at him. Smith threw up his arms to protect his face and body. Suddenly, he realized the man would kill him, just like the shark. He fought his way back into the water and swam clear of the treacherous group, where he floated about a hundred feet away, his only company, a dead body that bobbed face down beside him. Not having a life jacket or anything to support him, Smith clamped his right hand around his left wrist and held it that way for a long time, kicking his feet to keep his head above water. Just out of sight of the Gibson net group, L.D. Cox saw a giant shark shoot up from below and snatch the man next to him, life jacket and all. The attack so close that the splash curled over Cox like a breaking wave. Instinctively, he ducked and squeezed his eyes shut against the spray. When he opened them again, his buddy was gone. Several swells over from the Haynes group, gurgling screams tore the air. Seaman First Class James Denny Price and his friend Seaman James King pulled up their legs as sharks ripped into the outer circle of their group. King, severely injured in the sinking, decided he couldn't take it any longer. Pulling free from Price, he shucked his life jacket. And dove beneath the surface to end his own life. But Price dove down and caught him before he could get away. It was the third time King had tried it. A nearby friend questioned Price's sanity. Why did Price keep risking his own life to go after King? Price could only reply, It's the right thing to do. Now, 
to keep King from giving up again. Price grabbed his life jacket and wrapped it around them both. They huddled together as the sharks chewed into the group. Price could feel them hitting his feet, and he shivered with revulsion. There were so many now, he was practically walking on their backs. In the Redman group, Harpo Salea knew all about the sharks. Hours before, they had set up a patrol beneath him, their rough hides grazing his legs as they reconnoitered. He knew that if he actually saw a shark, he might come undone, so he clung to his rope and refused to look down. Then he heard an unearthly sound, a scream unlike any he'd ever heard a man make. The sharks had eaten another sailor. Some time later, relief arrived when a friendly face swam up. It was Fred Markman, a water tender from New Jersey. Harpo had always thought Markman looked a little like Popeye. He even had the famous forearms. Now, he was in bad shape, in both body and spirit. Salea offered to share his rope. I hurt my leg bad, Salea, Markman said. I don't think I'm going to make it. Don't talk like that. We'll be back ashore having a beer before you know it. That ain't going to happen. The sun was falling fast. For the next few hours, Markman seemed intent on making his own prediction come true. He pushed away from Harpo several times and tried to swim off to die. But Harpo kept after him, pulling him back to the relative safety of their little length of line. Harpo's throat stung with thirst. Unconsciously, he sucked on his St. Anthony's medal, which seemed to help. Just yards away, a tiny group of men on one of the rafts had begun to guzzle from the meager water supply and stuff their faces with hardtack. The trouble was that no one man could do anything to stop them. The raft men were packed in so tightly that moving was next to impossible without exerting a weak store of energy. Nor did any officers step forward, including Redmain, although by now he had identified himself as an officer to Harlan Twibble, a junior ensign. Twibble wanted to take charge, but feared overstepping Redmain's seniority. Finally, surrounding sailors began to yell for justice. Once again, it was Chief Benton who swam up and took charge. He asked the men to stop consuming the crackers and water. They'd likely be in the water for some time, he said, and it was necessary to save the provisions and ration them equally. This worked for the time being. 